Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The artist Mohamed Yange paints vibrant murals depicting inspirational and diverse images of people of color. His mission is to create murals in schools across America making the educational experience brighter for students and their teachers. We'll hear from Mohamed Yange today in our series, Speaking of the Arts. Also, producer Elaine DeLeo on the varied events surrounding the Atlanta Design Festival. First... In recent years, deportation and immigration have been at the forefront of the news cycle. In fiscal year 2020, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, known as ICE, said it carried out more than 185,000 deportations. The new documentary, Five Years North, takes an intimate look at the life of a child migrant living in the U.S. after his escape from Guatemala. 16-year-old Luis is the subject of the film, along with Judy, a Hispanic ICE officer working in New York. Five Years North was co-directed by Chris Temple and Zach Ingrassi and will premiere on World Channel as part of their America Reframed series. Filmmaker Zach Ingrassi joins me now via Zoom. Zach, welcome to City Lights. Thanks so much for having me. I saw that you and your filmmaking partner, Chris Temple, filmed Luis and his family for a decade between Guatemala and Luis living in the U.S. How did you first connect with Luis and his family? Yeah, it's been an incredible relationship with them. Ten years ago, Chris and myself were filming our first documentary called Living on One Dollar in this village of Peña Blanca, this rural village, Mayan village in in Guatemala. And Luis, who makes a cameo in that film, just became, you know, one of our favorite, you know, little kids. He's like seven at the time. And we really became very close with him and his family. And because of that first film, we were able to go back every single year and really follow Luis and his journey as he grew up and faced, you know, abject poverty in this community and ultimately felt like he was, you know, the only path forward was to come north to the United States. One of the beautiful aspects of this film, one of the most powerful aspects of the film, is that Luis puts a face on the immigration crisis. You bring out so much that's well-meaning from his perspective. I was hoping you could 
help us understand the differentiation of terms immigrant, asylum seeker, refugee, migrant? Yeah, absolutely. Some of these terms are actually differentiated by legal definition, but what I've learned is that those definitions don't always reflect the reality of situations and, and rarely do people identify with those terms. You know, and I think for Luis, who was actually fighting his immigration case to get what is called a special immigrant juvenile visa, which is even, you know, more of another term, he had a form of relief and he was stuck in the legal system, which took over a year even to hear his case. But you know, all of these terms get at different kind of experiences. The specific term refugee or asylum seeker, you know, you have to meet a certain qualification of, you know, escaping violence or escaping, you know, uh, having kind of a direct threat to your life. Unfortunately, you know, Luis was escaping poverty, which is not included in that, in that definition. So there are many terms, but the reality is that our immigration system is unjust and far beyond broken. And for Luis, as you see in this film, the amount of things that he had to grapple with as a kid alone, a 16-year-old alone trying to survive in New York City was pretty unimaginable. Oh, it's staggering what you present. Both Luis and his father crossed the border in the course of the film, we learn. Luis makes it to New York at age 16 and stays with his uncle. His father is deported back to Guatemala. Luis still owes his smuggler $18,000 at the beginning of the film. $18,000 for helping him cross the border. How common is that? How common is it for such a fee to be imposed on those trying to cross, even those who are sent back. I mean, this is very common as we've made it more difficult to cross the border. Smugglers have been able to charge more money to do that. And so oftentimes that cost will be $10,000. You know, in this case, Luis was responsible for him and his father's debt because, you know, his father was sent back. And it's a huge amount of money for someone coming from a community living in abject poverty. It's an amount of money that, you know, the reality is it, it traps people into this cycle where once you try and come, you have to keep trying because there's no way you could pay off that kind of debt if you stay in Guatemala. So, you know, this, yeah, an unimaginable burden for a 16 year old. And yet his sweetness comes through even when he's feeling exhausted and crumbling under the pressure of working 16-hour days. There's such an optimism and a joy in his outlook. This is a very devoted family you follow. I think that's what we really have been drawn to with Luis is his ability in the midst of an unimaginable situation to find little bits of hope and, and joy. And the, the real purpose of this film is to create a portrait of Luis and the ICE agent who patrols his neighborhood, Judy. Not necessarily, I mean, the, the experience of immigration is so broad. We wanted to really dive into these specific experiences uh, so that we could provide that kind of nuance and the intimacy that um, often is missing from kind of broad sweeping storytelling. So, you know, we felt like we had an opportunity to allow you to really understand at a deep level what this kid is going through. I was curious about his cell phone because it's such a lifeline. And his mother, his family back in Guatemala has a cell phone. Did you provide them that? No. So cell phones, you know, in the last decade have you know, there are more people with cell phones than running toilets in the world today. And they've become, technology has become this kind of indispensable form of communication for immigrants, young immigrants like Luis. And the, I mean, getting to, into that, Luis showed us that he had seven Facebook profiles, <laughs> yes. with, you know, thousands of Facebook friends. It really was this 
in, in this kind of very lonely experience, it was one of his only outlets to connect to people with his family, with other young kids around the world. I mean, I've never seen someone use Facebook to this extent. It was really something eye-opening for us and, and another kind of point of view of how technology can provide connection for someone in the situation. Yeah. And, you know, just to maintain sanity, keeping in mind why they are toiling here to be able to connect with the family. It, it's especially sweet when he takes photos of the tall buildings and when he sees a two-story building, I think in Times Square, <laughs> he's looking around and he said, oh, what's a two-story building? Luis had to leave school in Guatemala at age 10. How common is that? Yeah, in, in Guatemala, growing up, especially in rural areas that is largely, you know, indigenous populations, over 70% of the of the indigenous population is living under the extreme poverty line. And, you know, there are very little resources to keep kids in school. So, um, you know, Luis had to, in, in the third grade, had to drop out and become, you know, help his dad be the breadwinner of this family. And it's, it's incredibly common, and especially for young women, actually, even more so than young men. There's an incredibly high rate of dropout. But we were there on the first day that Luis went from, you know, basically went from this rural village to New York City. And um, just, you know, hopefully we allow you to see that moment of wonder coming into one of the biggest metropolises in, in the world. And there were these moments of kind of amazement and it was really pretty incredible to be there with him for that. So um, like you said, you know, you, you love the tall buildings and he loved going to Times Square with all the lights and he, you know, he really wanted to share that with his family. At the time he was even you know, live streaming video on his, on his Facebook to, to his family back home in, in Peña Blanca. Hmm. After crossing the border, some immigrants claim they're seeking asylum because they fear persecution if they're deported back home. Judy, the ICE officer in the documentary, mentions that this allows for the detainees to have their cases reviewed by the courts. What misunderstandings or incorrect assumptions do you think many Americans have about immigrants crossing the border? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really important thing to understand that no one wants to make that journey and you don't make a journey that is incredibly dangerous without feeling like you need to and you know for people fleeing persecution which is common in central america especially in el salvador and you know guatemala where there's incredibly high crime rates they're often fleeing for their lives and that would qualify them for refugee status and we are signed on to you know international accords that that say that we will accept refugees to our country. And there are also these people in kind of grayer areas, right? People like Luis, who's, who's escaping extreme poverty, which he also really has no choice but to come north and you know, seek out a better life. And I think that's, that's that gray area that we often don't think of. And I, I think it's important you brought up Judy, who has this very black and white view of immigration you know there are criminals and there are non-criminals and there's a moment in the film where you actually see judy making an arrest this of this young man ernest and in her mind he is a criminal but you know he had actually served his time in our criminal court in the united states and because immigration is a separate from our criminal justice system you know, I still deemed him as a criminal. And in this film, I think it was the hardest thing I've ever done as a filmmaker was to be on with the family of Ernest as he's calling them to tell them he's going to be deported, which came as a huge surprise to his family. You know, Ernest was a green card holder. I wondered how you did that. It didn't look like something that could be staged. And yet there he was. Well, I guess because you were riding with Judy. 
Yeah, so actually our, my co-director Chris Temple was riding with Judy and I was following up with the families who had just, you know, witnessed their father and husband be arrested. And so we were actually on both sides of that phone call where Ernest, this young man, is is literally saying goodbye for the last time to his wife and children. And it was because we were actually on both sides of that experience. You mentioned he served time, he paid his debt, he paid his fine. He has been since a good, upright citizen supporting his wife and family. His employer says, this, this is a hardworking man. And yet, this disconnect between the ICE system and what is the other judicial system under which he served time. Yeah, the criminal justice system is, you know, where he served time. And if we believe in restorative justice, right, like he did what was required of him. Of him. And yet our immigration system, because it is a completely different system, five years like after this happened, decided that it was his time to be deported. And it is a system that is just unbelievably beyond broken it is unbelievably unjust and to witness it firsthand was just brutal and i think hopefully this film can highlight in some ways from all sides how this system is destructive to the real human beings caught in the middle of it if you are just joining us this is city lights on wabe I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with co-director and producer Zach Ingrassi about the new documentary, Five Years More. How did you get in touch with Judy? It's a, it's a good question. Judy was not planned originally to be in the film. You know, we were following Luis in all aspects of his life as he had to go to school, as he had to go deal with his immigration case, as he lived with his cousins, as he had to work to survive and, and support his family. And we started to film with the people around him, right? His lawyer, his teachers, and ultimately this huge force of ice, right? Was it looming in his life? And we eventually, after a year, got permission to film with ice. And we ended up meeting Judy, who, like you said, is this Hispanic woman whose mother resettled refugees for 40 years and yet is an ICE agent. And I think that complexity of, you know, showing that the Latinx experience in our country is not monolithic and, and the complexity of her feeling like, you know, this was a job that she couldn't give up really was important to talk about. And yet you say complexity, irony. I mean, when we learned that her mother worked with a refugee resettling agency for 42 years, it's, it's a revelation how Judy can be pretty matter-of-fact about her neutrality to these migrants while carrying out her duties. Or do you think she... Do you think she struck some kind of balance? You know, Judy joined ICE before it was even called ICE. It was INS. And, you know, she's been there since 2003 when it, be it became ICE and Homeland Security was formed. So, you know, obviously being a couple years away from retirement, uh, it was, it's, it's interesting what she's done to, I think, in some ways protect herself from what is a you know, the things she witnesses every day and does every day. And I think in the film, you get to see how she's created this kind of black and white that I hope we can kind of challenge through some of the experiences that you, you witness of, of Luis and of Ernest, this young man. Well, I got to tell you early on, when we see her crying as she and a few other colleagues are banging on the door waiting for permission to enter someone's home, someone they're looking for to arrest. She's crying afterward because of the way the dog was living. It was an unkempt house. And while that was very touching, she didn't show that depth of emotion about the humans whose lives she was upending. Yeah, I think it points to the, you know, 
human beings can create a disconnect between their emotions and the reality. And, and I think for her, you know, the thing that broke through was the experience of, of that dog. And again, you know, this film is not going to give you a bunch of experts speaking to you. It's going to allow you to be a bit of a fly on the wall as real human beings are navigating these spaces. And um, yeah, there are, there are some really difficult moments for sure. What's the meaning of the title of the documentary, Five Years North? Over and over and over, you know, we spoke to Luis and his uncle and his cousins. Their dream was to go to the United States for five years, make enough money to build a house back in Guatemala to support their family, start a small business, and then return back to their village. And even though, you know, Luis's uncle and ultimately now Luis are staying much longer than five years, that was kind of the narrative we heard over and over. And so for us, this concept of what what those five years are like and what you have to endure for those five years to you know provide for your family is really what this film is about. And we were just with Luis recently and you know we started filming with him in 2017. So it's almost been that five year mark. Well, we're yet to see if, if that dream has been realized, but, but that's often the dream many of, many of the people from Guatemala have. In July of this year, Attorney General Merrick Garland issued a ruling restoring the ability of immigration judges to postpone deportation cases while awaiting rulings in related proceedings. The Trump-era Attorney General Jeff Sessions had eliminated administrative closure. Before Merrick Garland restored the ruling, what was the impact of that policy on ICE officers and immigration judges? So it actually ultimately created a ginormous backlog where, you know, judges who, under their discretion, could administratively close cases that they feel were not a priority for deportation. You know, and I personally think they should be trusted in those decisions, were forced to reopen them. And it just created a, a huge pressure on ICE to then, you know, a huge influx of, of cases that they had to review. And the other thing that happened in the Trump era is that these set of priorities that kind of forced ICE agents to prioritize uh, more serious criminals, those were removed. And so obviously there are people like Judy who, you know, kept those priorities, but ultimately it was at the discretion of individual ICE agents and their superiors to make those decisions. And that is a huge amount of discretion over real people's lives from just reading a case file. And I think it is something that that um, hopefully needs to be changed and these priorities need to be put back in place. And so immigration law is constantly changing, um, but hopefully, you know, there are these incremental changes that can streamline where resources are put and, and really kind of move things back on track. Hmm. You touch upon another important issue in the film faced by migrant children like Louise and adults, and that's their mental health. This kid likes school. This kid likes everything. He just has this amazing disposition, such a sunny outlook. But he wants desperately to help out his family. He believes that's his purpose in being here, and ends up working from 3 a.m. to 6 p.m. And it has a toll on his mental health. Yeah, the I think for us, this is probably one of the most important takeaways of the film is that our immigration system is creating a mental health crisis. The amount of stress and the amount of hoops that Luis had to go through ultimately you know, created panic attacks for Luis and he ended up in the hospital and there is just is not enough resources to support 
a young person like Luis. And there's so much more that we can be doing. And, you know, we're really excited to actually, with the launch of this film, to partner with The Door, which is an organization that actually ended up uh, ultimately helping Luis in New York City. And it's so important that there are these spaces and that the resources for kids who desperately need them and they aren't left alone. And, you know, I think it's something that we do not speak about enough, right? We think of, you know, immigrants as numbers and, of, you know, their legal cases, but they're also because of these kind of traumatic experiences of the journey, but also of just surviving and navigating our immigration system have a lot more trauma as well. Oh, indeed. And uh, as the employer of Ernest, the man who sadly is arrested and deported, even though he had a green card, he said, these people are not living off the system. These are hardworking, upstanding citizens. And I wondered how anyone can be so callous as to put this sweeping definition of immigrants, you know, making it an evil word, trying to invade our country, illegally crossing the border, when a tenet of our democracy is welcoming the oppressed. You have a Fourth of July scene, an Independence Day celebration scene in the film, and I wondered about what went through your mind as you were shooting that. Yeah, we happened to be with both Louise and with Judy on that day, and I think we hope that moment makes you really think about what you believe this country should stand for, because I don't believe we're upholding the values that we're preaching. And there are so many people in these gray areas of our society that are, are just being put through absolute hell. And I hope that the story of Luis, of someone so sweet and kind can you know, inspire people to continue this kind of ongoing fight for immigration reform, for supporting you know, new arrivals to our country, um, and there's so much more that we could be that we could be doing. And you know, I, I think Luis shows us that when there is support, and obviously the our neighbors are are such an important part of the fabric of 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 this country, and you know, can provide so so much. Zach, you and Chris are the founders of Optimist, a nonprofit production studio that creates films with impact. What action do you hope viewers will take after seeing this film? Yes, you know, and I think part of that Optimist team is our incredible editor Alejandro Valdez Rochin, who was a fundamental to crafting this story. You know, he has the lived experience as an immigrant. So it's not just Chris and I, but there's such a, a wonderful team of producers and editors and creatives that you know, made this film with us. Um, and we hope that, you know, this story can inspire some action, either by supporting organizations like The Door in your own community that provide legal and mental health support for new arrivals to our country, but also how we speak and think about people who have gone through this experience, you know, people like Luis. Um, and hopefully this can, can humanize a very, you know, polarizing issue when it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. So there's so much that people can do in their communities, and I don't think it's ever been as relevant as it is today. Co-director and producer Zach Ingrassi, his new documentary with Chris Temple, Five Years North, airs October 5th. That's tomorrow at 8 p.m. on World Channel and worldchannel.org as part of America Reframe. In a moment, speaking of the arts, our series featuring Atlanta artists in their own words. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta.
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Muhammad Youngay. I'm a portrait artist and a muralist. I call my style inspirational realism. I was originally a portrait artist, but I began composing these murals and canvas artworks that instilled pride or pulled some sort of inspirational or positive result from the viewer. My father was an artist, so like at a very young age, I was hooked. There was something about taking a blank piece of paper and then being able to fill it with color and lines, being able to create characters. And the biggest thing for me was being able to create depth. So if I can look into a piece of paper and be able to see very far into it or create something that looks like it's coming out at you, I could not get enough of that as a kid. And that just carried over from a teenager into my adulthood. I came to Atlanta to pursue hip hop in uh, 1996. By coincidence, it just happened to be the year of the Olympics. So of course I was super impressed. The Olympics had all of this energy attached to it. So here you have this international city with all these beautiful black people in positions of power and ownership and opportunity. And it was also a place that I could raise my daughters. So I love the rich history of Atlanta, what it meant to the civil rights. But what I really like the most is that it's like a blank canvas. It can really be what you want it to be. It's a metropolitan city that can also feel like the country sometimes. Like in one day, you can see people riding a horse or a dirt bike, a Harley, a Tesla, a scooter. You can see all of that in one day in Atlanta and it just feels normal. I love that it's full of black people, but it's also very diverse. And you can have the experience that you wanna have in Atlanta, depending on the people that you surround yourself with. I decided to pursue art as a career when I realized that the business of music was kinda shady and cutthroat. Um, so I would leave a studio, maybe not feeling too good, and go to a gallery show, and it was full of all of this imagery and people that were positive and uplifting. And I just kind of knew automatically which world that I fit into. When I first started painting, I would paint my heroes and I would paint images of music and jazz because that was the world that I knew. And then my daughters went to a charter school and the school was just amazing. I hadn't seen a group of people that was that like-minded and that determined to do something wonderful for my kids. I knew the way that I could contribute was to create art for the school and whatever I could do artistically, I eventually did. The principal asked me to teach visual arts and I ended up teaching there for 10 years. Somewhere in the middle of that teaching, I began doing these mural projects for our school and I actually thought it was kind of in the way of this other idea I had of going into galleries and getting into museums. But every time I did a mural, I would have another principal come to our school, see it, and ask me to do a mural at their school. And this turned into a career all its own without me really thinking about it or deciding to do it. I'm motivated by 
a collaboration of things, um, some of which are not the best of things like money or um, ambition and ego sometimes. But I'm also motivated by my ancestors and what their hopes and dreams were, their tears and failures. Probably the biggest piece of the motivational pie for me is young people who view my work and my hopes that it'll activate something positive from them, something positive for their day or something positive that could impact their life. I'm inspired by so many things. I really love great movies with great dialogue. I'm inspired by poetry or books and definitely anything that's visually masterful. And it's very easy when you get that inspiration to pick up a paintbrush and then pour that back into your own work. I love the Castleberry Hill area. They would have these art strolls on the weekends. So I would start with uh, Zucot Gallery, which is my favorite one. And then I would go to all of the smaller independent galleries or small studios. They would open their doors and you could go through and see all the different art that's happening mixed with like nightlife and cigar bars. So that's an amazing area. Since the pandemic, I haven't really been going out to galleries. I've been seeing art online and going to the Beltline. So the Beltline has increasingly become one of my favorite places in Atlanta. And what's so cool about experiencing art on the Beltline is that you really don't go for the art. You, you go for the exercise on a sunny day. But for me, the art is always the thing that I remember when I go home. Like it's always the thing that uplifts me during my exercise. So that has become my favorite way to experience art. Visual artist Muhammad Yange and our series Speaking of the Arts. More information about Yange's work is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, the varied events surrounding the Atlanta Design Festival from producer Elaine DeLeo. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The annual Atlanta Design Festival is underway now throughout the city. Established brands and independent new designers come together to discuss and exchange ideas on the economic and social impact of design. This year's focus is reconnecting the community. Elaine DeLeo is the producer of the Atlanta Design Festival. She joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. I'm happy to be here. Elaine, why was the Atlanta Design Festival created? We saw a need in Atlanta for designers and architects and people that were, are actually working with design as a practice and contributing to Atlanta's economy to have a platform. We really feel like that is the, the big opportunity for the festival is to showcase the fact that Atlanta is leveraging design across a number of industries and that the festival is here for people to showcase their work and the services that they're bringing. We also wanna make sure that we're bringing in international voices uh, through the festival and that people are and learning and uh, being educated on what other practitioners in the field of design are doing all around the world. Oh. How will this year's theme of reconnecting the community be demonstrated in the events surrounding the festival? Yes, yeah, so COVID impacted the festival. We were not able to host it last year and we had a, we scheduled it a number of times. And I think a lot of businesses and industries are, have felt that same thing, as well as our, our city. 
And so we know that there is a large community within the city of people that, you know, were, were really affected by COVID and arts and culture were uh, affected by it as well. So we want the festival to be an opportunity for those voices to talk about things like inequity. Uh, how do we build better and more equitable communities? And we actually have Park Cannon, who's a state rep from Georgia speaking with um, a practitioner on that topic, um, Todd Bursch from HOK. And mm. so those are the kind of conversations that we want to bring forth. And uh, we think the festival is a great way uh, and opportunity for people to hear about those opportunities. One of the important talks that will be given for free at the festival is creating equitable communities and coming through COVID-19. Can you give us a sneak preview? Sure. You know, we look at what other cities, what, what differentiates other international cities. And we really believe Atlanta can stand out as an international city if we embrace good design. And that conversation that I mentioned between Park Cannon and, and Todd will really discuss like, how do we maintain an identity as a city, but also be progressive in how we are doing development and taking into consideration how we are place keeping as well as place making. So making sure that uh, communities that tend to be marginalized are included in those conversations while we're also um, you know, increasing the number of new projects and new developments that come in. So projects like the Beltline are incredible for the city, but there are also downsides to that. So that's what that conversation will address. And how do people have more of a voice in seeing their city evolve? When you speak about the downside, would that be gentrification? Yes, that is definitely one of them people being uh, unable to pay for rents, obviously, is a part of that. Yeah. Our buildings being created that support the needs of the disabled, elderly. You know, these are all things that we need to have a vibrant city, just like a Paris or a London. And um, I feel and I think we see sometimes that Atlanta doesn't do a great job of that. Really? Yes. What are some other U.S. cities that do a good job? I think from my own perspective, um, cities like Portland, Boston, even Detroit are doing really good things in terms of creating communities and spaces that are available to people from all different walks of life and are addressing housing issues and inequality and making sure that you know cities are able to support people from all different walks of life because everyone that is working in Atlanta needs to have somewhere close by to live. And what we're seeing is a lot of those people that do the work that are um, really the contributors, the frontline workers are being pushed further and further out of the city. Mm. So those cities, I think, if you look at some of the use cases and case studies that we've seen are doing a really good job to make sure that there's a good equitable opportunity for everybody. Important to pay attention to those places. I saw there will be a women in design discussion. Who will give that talk and what will they address? Interestingly enough, we were approached by Instacart about participating in the festival this year. They really invested heavily in design as a company. During COVID, they had to take a look at how their app was working and making sure that it was something that was accessible to everyone that was in need of food. And so Instacart became a necessity versus just a nice to have. So we actually have a director of content um, who will be speaking and she's going to talk about how to design in a crisis mm -hmm. and how uh, UX design is affected by things like COVID and, and how that's moving them into a, a better place in the future. And then we have a woman from a major art department. Her name is Hannah Meachin. And she is really just a groundbreaker in terms of the work she's been doing in production design. She's worked with Elton John, uh, Missy Elliott, DJ Khaled on videos and commercials. And she's going to talk about how she started her business from the ground up in a very male-dominated industry. So we're getting really great uh, feedback on those two, two speakers. 
Oh, it sounds like you should. What are some other highlights of the week? We are bringing in international content, even though, unfortunately, a number of the folks that were planning to come couldn't because of COVID travel. So um, we work with an organization called Dutch and Virtuals. They're based out of the Netherlands, and they are a consortium of designers that are looking at designing new products and solutions in new and unique ways, specifically around sustainability and the circular economy. We're also partnered with the Swiss consulate this year, and they have brought in one of their technology, science, and engineering schools called ETH. And their students are going to be presenting on what are some of the new materials coming out that organizations and companies are using in creating new products. So, you know, how are we using new materials to create things like prosthetics and reusing um, materials that would normally be thrown, thrown away? Mm. Again, circular economy is a big part of the conversation. And then we also have our tours, which people are, you know, pretty much know us for. And we'll be doing um, a tour in Atlanta on the ninth. Five residential projects, including a tiny home village. We're excited about those homes and those locations. Are these the Ma architecture tours? Yes. Yeah, those are part of the, the Ma architecture tour. Yeah. And you told me Ma stands for modern Atlanta. That's correct. Yes. We, we shortened it. Thinking about another acronym, MODA the Museum of Design Atlanta. Do you work with them in coming up with the events for your festival? No, we're separate organizations, but I do reach out to MODA to participate. We have partnered with them on a, on a few events over the years. So we support what they're doing and they are supportive of what we do. So we do try to collaborate where there is opportunity. And would you talk about combining virtual and in-person events for this year's festival? Yes. Yeah, so what we found because of COVID, we realized that going virtual, although we were worried about attendance, actually expanded our platform and our content to a much broader audience all over the world. So we really have found a niche now, I think, with doing a combination of both. Obviously, the tours, you know, people want to see those in person. But I think conversations and talks now virtually are opening up the festival to people that had never heard of us before. So we like both. And I think we will continue to offer both. Finally, Elaine, when a company, an organization is considering a brand, a new brand, trying to come up with a new design, or a talented young designer is trying to create a new product, what advice would you give them? I would say stay true to yourself. Definitely look for opportunities to collaborate with international designers or or to seek out companies that are doing work that aligns with your own philosophy and ideas about the world. We are big supporters of young talent. You know, we work with Georgia Tech and their industrial department, and we try to give those designers a voice. I think a lot of young designers, especially students, are kind of stuck in academia, and they need to get their work out there, and they need to collaborate and talk with other designers and practitioners that have have executed and have experience. So I'd say definitely, you know, look at what you want to do, bring your work out into the world, talk with people that are doing it and have succeeded and maybe even some that have failed. But design is all about solving problems. And so anywhere you look, you'll find people that are leveraging design. So I think the opportunity is there for everybody. Elaine DeLeo producer of the Atlanta Design Festival, which is ongoing through October 10th. More information about the virtual and in-person events can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be on the set of the step-up movies or stomp the yard? 
Well, now here's your chance. The Global Street Dance Competition, Red Bull Dance Your Style, makes its first-ever Southern debut in Atlanta. Local dancers, movers, and shakers will go head-to-head, performing against a spontaneous soundtrack. Audiences will get the chance to judge their favorite performers and vote on who will move up each round to qualify for the Red Bull Dance Your Style National Finals. Dancers will have no pre-planned choreography or music choices when taking the stage. For those unable to attend in person, it will be live-streamed. Viewers can watch and vote through their live-stream partner, Caffeine. The competition will be held Thursday, October 7th at the Believe Music Hall off Ralph David Abernathy Boulevard. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Seattle glass artist Jason Gamrath shares the secrets behind his supernatural exhibit, on view at the Atlanta Botanical Garden. Plus, we'll find out what Little Five Points has in store for Halloween season with artist Sam Carter and organizer Melanie Rabb. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.